The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. The word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. We're here this morning studying the word of God in the book of Romans. Book of Romans. We have completed our verse-by-verse study through the book of Romans, and we are in the process right now of going back through and reviewing what we learned in that study. Part of the reason we're doing that is because as we do verse-by-verse studies, often we get down into the nitty-gritty details, and sometimes we lose the forest for the trees. And so completed the study. We're going back through it now and looking at the principles that we've learned from our study And what's been awesome about doing this review is that we've actually picked up on some nuances and learned some new things as part of the process, and great questions have come up as part of the process, so it's been really edifying, I believe. We are going to be looking at Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, here in just a moment. Before we do, it's imperative that we as believer priests make sure we are ready for this study of God's Word. We're going to take a moment for silent prayer, gives us the opportunity for confession of sin, but also the opportunity to quiet our minds and humble ourselves so that we might be teachable, shall we pray? Most gracious and merciful And loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for blessing us with this opportunity to gather here at the church this morning. We thank you for the precious truth of your word that you have preserved for us so that from it we can understand the reality of who you are and the reality of the life that you have designed for us to live. And Father, without your word, we would only have a a glimpse through the creation of your character your attributes of your essence, but through your word that you have preserved for us, we have the ability to gain a true understanding. And we are able to learn about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through whom we have a relationship with you. So thank you for preserving your word. Thank you for allowing us to grow in our faith as we study it. Help us this morning to set aside all distractions, to focus our attention on exactly what it is that your word is supposed to teach us this morning, that through it we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his most precious and beautiful name. Amen. That was a topic, by the way, at the conference down in Houston was the preservation of God's word through the, through the years. I don't, know how many, uh, I don't know how many of you were able to uh, actually connect up and see some of the sessions, but... It was extremely, uh, extremely well done and very detailed, and uh, there's a lot that, that could be gleaned out of it, and it was, it was, I was blessed to be able to be a part of that. In our uh, study this morning, again, we're going to look at Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, and this is our translation, which we uh, came up with as we went through the verses, verse by verse. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities For there is no authority except that which is given by God, and the governing authorities which exist have been established by God. So then, whoever rejects such authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive governmental judgment upon themselves, for government officials are not a cause of intimidation for good behavior, but for evil. Do you think you should have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have approval from the same." For it is a servant of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword without a purpose. For it is a servant of God, an agent of punishment who brings retribution to the one who carries out evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection to the governing authorities, not only because of retribution, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes for governing authorities are servants of God, consistently doing this very thing. Fulfill your obligations to everyone. Give tax to whom tax is due. Give custom to whom custom is due. Give fear to whom fear is due. Give honor to whom honor is due. And that is our translation. Let's look at some principles with regard to that. As believers, we're commanded to submit to the governing authorities. This is not the only place in scriptures that we find this. Titus 3.1. Remind them 
to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Now, of course, in some of these cases, you could say, well, isn't that really talking about our spiritual authorities? Well, I believe that that's in view as well. But the idea, of course, is we need to be in subjection to governmental authorities also. First, and we're going to talk about what that means to be in subjection. We'll get to that in the principles. First Peter 2, 13 and 14. In this case, we go to the translation we we did in First Peter, verses 13 and 14. Be in subjection to every human authority for the Lord's sake, whether to a king as the one having power over you or to governors as sent by him for the proper punishment of criminals and the praise of law-abiding citizens. At least that's what government's supposed to do, right? These authorities are established by God who is sovereign over everything. Often in churches like this, we proclaim the truth of the word of God. And as part of that, we talk about one of the huge factors in uh, the outplaying of God's alpha to omega plan, and that is human volition, right? We often talk about human volition and how that factors into the things that we see in the world around us. For example, uh, all of us are in a fallen estate. Why? Because of a volitional choice made by Adam in the garden, That affected all of us. We were all, uh, as descendants of Adam, we were all affected by a volitional choice that was made in the garden. And one of the, one of the blessings that we have from scripture is that right there in the, in, in the early messages of the book of Genesis, we see God in his sovereignty turning over authority to Adam. For example, God gave it over to Adam to name the animals. God could have named the animals. But he gave it over to Adam. He's, he gave that as an assignment, if you will, to Adam to name the animal. So we see God in his absolute sovereignty handing over authority to Adam. And we know that we all have been given the authority, if you will, of volitional choices. Well, that's good and bad in a way, <laughs> right? Because positive volition is a wonderful thing. And it, it's, a, it's a blessing for us. And it's, it brings honor and glory to God as we make positive choices. But negative volition results in a lot of trouble in this life. Uh, but what we want to understand in a church like this, we don't want to overemphasize human volition to the point where we ignore the sovereignty of God. That's, we, when we go through the essence of God, isn't that one of the things we talk about is his sovereignty? We do. And so we want to make sure we properly emphasize, emphasize his sovereignty. Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him to you. O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. And of course, that's the incident where Nebuchadnezzar wanted to understand uh, an interpretation of the dream. And Daniel, of course, gives all the glory to God uh, because it was God that gave him the understanding. But in the passage where he does that, he talks about the sovereignty of God and how God is able to give assignments, if you will, to who's going to be king and who's not. And this is a longer section here, Daniel chapter 4, verses 10 through 33. But let's read through this together. Now, these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and, it was food, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows. Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground. But with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers 
and the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high, look what it says here, that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on it whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. Verse 18, this is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, tell me its interpretation inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. This is where he's still not really seeing the clear picture, Nebuchadnezzar, that is. In verse 19, then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while and as his thoughts alarmed him. And the king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar replied, my Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. The tree, you, the tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all under which the beasts of the field dwelt and in whose branches the birds of the sky lodged, it is you. O king, for you have become great and grown strong and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. In that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one descending from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. And this is the decree of the most high, which has come upon my Lord, the king, that you be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field and you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heavens and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Notice the sovereignty of God in that. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with its roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case... There may be a prolonging of your prosperity. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar, the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, this is just unbelievable. After hearing all that, twelve months later, look what the king reflected and said. Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? It's just hard to even fathom, but yet we do the same thing, don't we? Uh, verse 31, while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you and you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes immediately. The word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Now, we could go on from there, but you'll notice in that passage there's a, there's a dynamic that's very important because one of the things that's implicit in that is that sovereignty had been given to him. God had given that sovereignty to Nebuchadnezzar in the first place, and then it was going to be taken away. And he had been, he had been told, Daniel had told him what that dream was all about, and yet Nebuchadnezzar still got up and said the things. One of the lessons I think, you know, we could, I think maybe I could write a book. Don't go on the roof, right? I mean, <laughs> don't go on the roof. It's a bad idea because look what happens when you go up on the roof, but he gets up and he makes this declaration and it's all about what he has done, not recognizing at all that he wouldn't even have had the authority to do any of that were it not for God. Now, then we see, of course, the fulfillment of the dream as his sovereignty is taken away, but God grants sovereignty and he can take it away. It's his to do because he is ultimately the sovereign one. John 19, 11, Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. So what Jesus is saying here is there's a context here, and I don't want to 
ignore that. But the, but the reality of it is, look what he says. He tells them, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Very important to understand that. Jesus is telling them, look, the all authority comes from above. All authority ultimately comes from God. When we submit to such authorities, we submit to the authority which they have been given by God. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. We're going to see more about that in the principles. When you submit to the authorities, you submit to the authority which has been given to them by God. Does the government have the authority to tell you not to proclaim the gospel? No, it does not. It has not been given that authority from God. So when you submit to authorities, you don't submit to everything they declare. You submit to the authority they have been given by God. Can, uh, can the authority come in and tell you that you can no longer uh, stay married to your spouse? You have to leave them and go off into a camp somewhere. Does it, do they have the authority to do that? I, no, they don't. That's why the principle here of being subject to the authorities, it's implicit in that that you're subjecting yourself to the authority which they actually have from God and not beyond that. They don't have all authority. God does, Right? God's the one who has all authority. He is the sovereign one. They don't have all authority. They only have the authority which has been given them. We volitionally submit to these authorities, but do so within the context of our volitional submission to God. Matthew twenty-two twenty-one. They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, this was the point here. Let me back up here. Verse 16, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God and truth and defer to no one for you're not partial to any. See, I, th- I think there's actually a little bit of a dishonesty in that statement from them. I don't think they really believe all that about him. Verse 17, tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice. Let's see what my point right there. And said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? And by the way, when I read that, I think you have to read it the right way. Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? He didn't say it. He did. They always talk about Jesus being gentle and kind. I think he called them out in a big way right there. You hypocrites, show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is, is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and the, to God the things that are God's. So here's the thing, right? We, we have a responsibility to the governing authorities over us. But isn't our ultimate responsibility to God? It is. It, it ultimately is. It's in the context of volitional submission to God. This dual submission might require us to disobey the commands of men. And you had to know when we were looking at this that we were going to turn to these passages. Uh, Acts chapter 4, 18 through 20. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach it all in the name of Jesus. I'm waiting for that to happen in the United States. I think it's coming if we live long enough. They commanded them not to speak or teach it all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. So basically, they, he didn't, they, they didn't say it outright, but what they said is, eh, we're not going to do that. That's what they said. Yeah, we can't stop speaking about this. We, we have to. You, you decide. Of course, the, a, a similar, similar thing in Acts 5, 27 through 29, when they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. <clears throat> It goes on from there. Uh, it's that, it really comes down to it. And a lot of times, see, I think we can get really wrapped up and caught up in things when it comes to this principle. And we can kind of get overly, uh, I don't want to say rebellious. That's not the right word. But we can become overly eager to resist authority. And the reality of it is we need to, we need to consider the principle. The real principle is that as long as the government is providing us the ability to continue to walk in our faith, they're not blocking us from being able to do the things of our faith. I can sit here from a pulpit and proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior, the only Savior, the only way, 
right? I can proclaim that. We can teach the things of the word of God and no police force is coming through that door to stop me from doing it. As long as we have the freedoms to continue on in life and do those things that honor and glorify God, we should be satisfied with that. Now, it doesn't mean you give up on everything, but I'm saying is when more and more you see things being infringed upon, that's, that's ultimately what we want to protect is the ability to worship and honor God. However, comma, <laughs> very important, as you see more and more infringements happening to our freedoms, if, if you're paying attention, you know where that's going. And if you can stop it out here somewhere before it gets to the local churches, then that's the best way you can do it. But we want to, that's the thing we want to really care about. It's not that, you know, I want to be able to, I want to be able to have the freedom to be able to, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, watch seven different football games on a Sunday afternoon or whatever it is, whatever you're thinking of. I mean, it's really, if, if, if that's not the case and some of those things are taken away, we're going to be fine. It's when the infringement comes upon the local church and the ability of pastors to proclaim the truth, that's when you've got a problem. Well, we're seeing it around the world, by the way. We really haven't seen specific cases in the United States of America yet. But when you see, that's why I say you've got to be paying attention. When you see it happening in Canada, when you see it happening in England, when you see it happening in different places, you need to be paying attention because uh, coming, to a, coming to a theater near you soon, right? We, seriously, the idea is it's going to happen. If it's happening over there, it will happen somewhere in the States eventually. So you've got to be paying attention. But when, it, when, it, when somebody puts forth a command that limits your ability to worship God and glorify and honor him, that's when you draw, you for sure draw the line there. I can't obey that. Like I've told you before, I mean, I, I say it sort of jokingly, but not really completely. You know, if they outlaw uh, telling the truth, if they make it illegal for me, for example, to proclaim that homosexuality is a sin, if that becomes illegal in the United States of America, if that becomes declared hate speech, please come visit me in jail because that's where I'm going to be because I'm not going to stop proclaiming it. And if they throw me in jail, they throw me in jail. That's, that's, that's how it'll be. Yes. Right. Yeah, well, so Yeah, well, exactly. Like in North Korea, the example was given in North Korea where obviously that's that's a place where proclaiming your faith is something that's actually dangerous, right? I mean, you can potentially be jailed and or worse, right? You could be killed, martyred for your faith. But I say worse, it might not necessarily be worse, but the reality of it is they have to be underground with it, right? So, they, for example, somebody can walk down the street uh, in North Korea and they can be praying silently, just not out loud, praying silently. The government can't stop them from doing that. And there's underground churches. You know, people have underground churches in North Korea, China, other places like that. So you can continue on, but the bottom line of it all is we would, it would be preferable if we could have a government that supports us in our worship of God as opposed to the opposite. Yes, sir. Yeah, you're right about that. So a lot of people don't know that. If you if you if you study history, you'll see that when when the founders of this nation decided to push back against the authorities that were over them, right, in the colonies during the time of the colonization and decided to push back. They did not do so lightly. They didn't just say, oh, well, let's just do this. It was actually prayerfully considered. And there were pastors that were involved in the process of determining, is, is what we're doing going to be an offense to God? Or is this okay? Is it okay for us to push back? And so it was done thoughtfully. And because of the way they saw the importance of the things we're talking about right now, and the way they established this nation, we've gone for centuries without issues, but now this is all coming to a head once again. Such disobedience must be done while remaining in subjection to the authorities. Now, let me show you what I mean by that. In Acts 4.19, but Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of, the God, of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot 
uh, stop speaking about what we have seen and heard, right? We, uh, well, I went to the wrong passage. It's supposed to be 413. That's a bad link. No, it is 419. All right, so right in the middle of that. So here's the thing. You be the judge. Now, see, here's the thing. So what they're saying is, what they're saying is, okay, we're, gonna, we're not going to stop. If that means that we get punished by the authorities, then we get punished by, by the authorities. It goes back to what I was saying. If they tell me I can't proclaim homosexuality as a sin, I might get thrown in jail. And that is the, is the part about being in subjection. Now, I'm not going to stop proclaiming the truth of God's word. If that means the authorities throw me in jail, then they throw, they'll throw me in jail. That's, that's what the government's going to do, right? And so they were willing to be punished by the authorities. In chapter 5, if we go further down... Uh, verses 40 and 42, Acts chapter 5, 40 through 42, they took his advice and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer for his name, suffer shame, excuse me, for his name. Now, how many of us think that way? Because I mean, I tell you, one of the hardest things to preach from the pulpit is that suffering is part of the Christian life. People don't want to hear that message, right? They want, they want more of a glossed over, everything's going to be great, your life's going to be perfect. But the reality of it is, look, what, this, look at the attitude here, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. But now verse 42, you can't leave that off. This is very important. So they got, they got flogged, they got punished. For speaking in the name of Jesus, they got released. They rejoiced that they had suffered for the name of Jesus Christ. Verse 42, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They didn't stop, did they? But they, they willingly accepted the punishment from the authorities because those were the governing authorities. They willingly accept that punishment and rejoiced that they were suffering for the name of Christ. You see what I'm saying? So they disobeyed the direct command, but they were willing to accept the consequences of that. They were honoring God in their disobedience because they did so within subjection to the authorities. If that makes sense. I hope that does. Now, rejecting the divine institution, individuality, marriage, family, government, will result in consequences for opposing God's design. There are going to be consequences to that. We're seeing attacks on all of this, all of it. I mean, if you think about it, when we, when, we, when we just say individuality, what does that even mean anymore? Because today, you can just invent whoever you want to be, right? I mean, that's just, we, we've gone to a level of complete insanity. Uh, my wife showed me a, a video that someone sent her that was this, this lady that was going, just going off on this whole gender insanity that we're seeing happening. And, it, and it, what, what kills me, I've, I've made this point before, the whole argument of the alphabet group is upside down because they say you don't have any choice when it comes to your sexuality. You don't have any choice. That's, who you, that's how you were born. You were born uh, either hetero or homo, right? You, you don't have a choice or bi or whatever they'll say, right? Uh, but you do have a choice when it comes to your gender. They've got it upside down. It's 180 degrees out. You don't have a choice in your gender. That's how you were born. But you do have a choice of who you sleep with. Right. So it's it's ridiculous. So we have a, a tax on that sort of thing. Marriage, of course, has been under attack for a long time. That institution that Satan knows if he can destroy marriage, he can make great inroads. And that that family, by the way, is a, is a secondary effect of that. If you start destroying marriages, you'll start destroying families. But you see now you see uh, efforts happening that are going to a level that I never thought I would see really where you have school boards, you've probably seen this, where you have school boards saying that parents don't have any authority over their kids as to what they learn in school. Where did these people get so arrogant that they thought that was the case? I mean, that's ridiculous. They're telling parents, you don't have authority over your children when it comes to what we teach them in school. They're trying to, see, they're trying to rip those kids away from the parents is what they're trying to do and indoctrinate them in the process. And then ultimately government, because God did establish human government. Uh, and any time you oppose those things, there are consequences. Now, it's God who takes care of those. When we reject the governing authorities, it can also result in judgment and punishment from those same authorities. We've got to realize that when those authorities uh, exist over us, and that's what we were just looking at, that if you disobey, then you might find that you're going to be punished by the authorities. That can happen. If, for example, uh, you uh, go down this, the highway out here, 
which has a 75-mile-an-hour speed limit on it, and you decide you want to go 90, well, that's not the Autobahn. There is a speed limit posted. So if you go, if you go 90 and a police officer sees that you're going 90, uh, he can stop you and he can write you a ticket, right, because you've decided you don't want to obey that law. In a way, I, you're not actually completely rejecting the authorities, but you're rejecting that sign that's posted out on the highway. So anytime you do that, there will be potential punishment from the authorities that are over us. As a general rule, law-abiding citizens need not fear the government. General rule, law-abiding citizens need not fear the government. Deuteronomy 25.1, if there's a dispute between men and they go to court and the judges decide their case and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, then it shall be if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, the judge then make him lie down and be beaten in the presence of uh, presence, you mean his presence with the number of stripes according to his guilt and so on. The idea, though, look at the verse one, the dispute. They go to court and the judges decide the case, right? The judges uh, decide the case. The idea is they're going to justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. That's what government should do. That's what government should do. Are we seeing that in terms of governmental authorities today at every level? I would say no. We're seeing governments now that are justifying the wicked and condemning the righteous we're seeing it happen now, not at every level not at every level but we're we're seeing it we're seeing evidence of that proverbs fourteen thirty five: the king's favor is toward a servant who acts wisely but his anger is toward him who acts shamefully again this is how it should be this is the general rule for how things are supposed to be when this is not the case there is legitimate cause for groaning i love that groaning uh, Proverbs 29.2, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, people groan. Is there groaning going on right now? <laughs> I think there's groaning going on right now. People groan. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verses 4 through 7, if the ruler's temper rises against you, do not abandon your position because composure allays great offenses. There is an evil I have seen under the sun like an error which goes forth from the ruler. Folly is set in many exalted places while rich men sit in humble places. I have seen slaves riding on horses and princes walking like slaves on the land. Now, this is an interesting passage in Ecclesiastes, but one of the things you can see is when things kind of can get turned upside down, right? So what we have, you know, so this whole thing, for example... It doesn't exactly fit with this, but I want to give you kind of the idea if you have the whole DEI thing going on, right? Diversity, equity, inclusion. I like the Pastor Bob uh, of Austin Bible Church. He likes to spell it D-I-E because that's what he wants to happen to the whole thing. Uh, so, but the, the whole thing about this, the whole idea, by the way, I thought it was interesting that uh, one of our politicians recently was asked, if they could explain the difference between equality and equity, and unable to do so, and it was a, it was one of the people that's purporting this nonsense. Uh, but I can tell you a great way to understand it: equality is equality is the idea of equality of opportunity. Equity is the idea of equality of outcome. Right? Equity says that everybody's going to succeed. Everybody should have the exact same outcome. So if I decide to get up at four o'clock in the morning and I work from before the sun comes up, and I don't quit working until after the sun goes down, and I do that six days a week and rest on the seventh day, uh, and I move myself forward in my position in life, and somebody else sits around and does nothing but play video games all day, according to equity, we should all have the same outcome, right? We, I should ha I, that person who just sits around and plays video games should be just as well off as the person who gets up at 4 o'clock in the morning and grinds until after the sun goes down six days a week. That's the idea of equity. Diversity that we have being pushed forward is the idea that uh, it doesn't matter whether or not someone's qualified. We need to make sure we get a mix of people in here, a diverse mix of people in here, and qualifications go right out the window. It doesn't even really matter as long as we can have a, a good mix of people in the, in the group. And then, of course, inclusion, that idea is that it doesn't matter, uh, it doesn't matter what people do. You have to include them in there. I mean, including some really perverted behavior. You know, it doesn't matter if you're a pervert. Come on in, right? That's the idea of inclusion, seriously. Uh, so diversity, equity, inclusion, what that does is it flips everything kind of upside down. It makes it where we're no longer in a meritorious system anymore. 
And you now have it based on your, the government's going to decide who succeeds and who doesn't, right? That's the idea of, of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And uh, that's kind of flipping everything upside down on its head, and that's what we're seeing in our government today. Uh, God will deal with nations which are ruled by men that defile the people by promoting ab- abominable things. In Leviticus uh, 18, verses 24 through 28, uh, Do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for by all these the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. For the land has become defiled, therefore I have brought its punishment upon it. So the land has spewed out its inhabitants. But as for you, you are to keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not do any of these abominations, neither the native nor the alien who sojourns among you. For the men of the land who have been before you have done all these abominations and the land has become defiled. Look what it says in verse 28. So that the land will not spew you out should you defile it as it has spewed out the nation which has been before you. So the point about this is that these nations have been defiling the things, right? There's been abominations taking place. And I still, I look, I've said this a lot of times. I still, I look at the United States of America. I look where we are. I look where we're going, or it seems where we're going. And I just don't know why God hasn't spewed us out. Honestly, uh, have we, what have we done as a nation? I'm talking about overall, um, our leaders. What have we done as a nation that deserves him leaving us here? I mean, I think we've done everything to deserve being spewed out. We've, we've done everything to deserve losing our, our sovereignty, but yet he persists in maintaining us. And I think there are reasons for that. A couple of them I've told you before that I believe that at least to this point, we are a supporter of Israel, and I think that's one of the reasons. I think another reason is because of the evangelism. Uh, of course, we're going to have a presentation in the second hour from from Pastor Mark Perkins talking about uh, evangelism and the mis- missionary work over in Tahiti, and I think this nation sends people out all over this world, and I think that's another reason that God preserves us. But you look at, the, look at, you look at where we're going and the things that are happening, and you just shake your head and go, I if I, it's a good thing I'm not God because I would have said enough, you know, enough of you. So, what'd you say, Jesse? There is a remnant. Yeah, there is a remnant, and often, see, that's the problem. The problem is when you, you know, when you read things, and and in the news, and and you watch uh, things that are that are out there in the media, it can really get to you because you can all, you're always seeing all the bad stuff, and you can never realize yes, there there is a remnant. There is a remnant, and, and it's, it's actually a fairly strong remnant, and, and the ones that are here. And, but we need to be praying for that, by the way, that the, Satan's making inroads in that because Satan has done a lot to take born-again believers and send them down the wrong path. You know, churches hanging rainbow flags inside their buildings and other things like that. We're seeing the churches themselves uh, defiling themselves. And so uh, we need to be praying for the remnant as well. So, it's, you know, we, we often forget to think about that. As a general rule, criminals ought to fear the government because it punishes evildoers. That's a general rule. Unless, you know, you have a government that says, oh, says, oh you know, if you, if you go in and you rob Walgreens, don't, we're not going to worry about that. It doesn't matter. So, yeah, as long as it's under some amount of money or whatever, then Walgreens says we're not going to do business here anymore, and then the government gets mad because they leave. But that, that's, we have, you have that happening. Uh, God instituted human government to bear the sword of justice. Genesis 9, 5, and 6. Surely, oh, I'm sorry, get that off of there. Surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast I will require it, from every man, from every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. It goes on from there. But the idea, this is the institution of human government, and not just human government, but capital punishment. Capital punishment instituted by God in Genesis chapter 9, after the flood. Exodus uh, 21, verses 23 through 25, but if there's any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. So the idea is, what does that mean if we were to sum all of that up? The idea is there should be punishment that is equal to the crime. Right, whatever the whatever the crime was, there should be punishment that goes with that. And I've told you this before, when it comes to our dealings with Almighty God Himself, 
as his children, as born-again believers in Jesus Christ, as his adopted children into the royal family of God, we don't get punishment that's equal to the crime. God actually deals with us as, as a disciplinarian. He gives us the amount of discipline he thinks we need in order to get us to change our minds, to repent. So we are not given the full brunt of what we really deserve when we do things. God only gives us the, the amount of discipline needed to get us to go the right way. Numbers 35, there's a lot we're going to read here, verses 6 through 34. Uh, the cities which you shall give to the Levites shall be the six cities of refuge which you shall give for the manslayer to flee to. And in addition to them, you shall give 42 cities. All the cities which you shall give to the Levites shall be 48 cities together with their pasture lands. As for the cities which you shall give from the possession of the sons of Israel, you shall take more from the larger and you shall take less from the smaller. Each shall give some of his cities to the Levites in proportion to his possession, which he inherits. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, there, excuse me, then you shall select for yourselves cities to be your cities of refuge, that the manslayer who has killed any person unintentionally may flee there. The cities shall be to you as a refuge from the avenger, so that the manslayer will not die until he stands before the congregation for trial. See, that's the essence of this. The cities which you are to give shall be your six cities of refuge. You shall give three cities across the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan. Uh, they are to be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for refuge for the sons of Israel and for the alien and for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills a person unintentionally may flee there. But if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. The murderer sh shall surely be put to death. If he struck him down with a stone in the hand by which he will die, and as a result he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. Or if he struck him with a wooden object in the hand by which he might die, and as a result he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. The blood avenger himself shall put the murderer to death. He shall put him to death when he meets him. If he pushed him of hatred or threw something at him lying in wait, and as a result he died, or if he struck him down with his hand in enmity, and as a result he died, the one who struck him shall be put to death, shall surely be put to death. He is a murderer. The blood avenger shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. But if he pushed him suddenly without enmity, or threw something at him without lying in wait, or with any deadly object of stone, and without seeing it, he dropped, dropped on him so that he died, while he was not his enemy nor seeking his injury, then the congregation shall judge between the slayer and the blood avenger according to these ordinances. The congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the blood avenger, and the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he fled. And he shall live in it until death, excuse me, until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. But if the manslayer at any time goes beyond the border of his city of refuge to which he may flee, and the blood avenger finds him outside the border of his city of refuge, and the blood avenger kills the manslayer, he will not be guilty of blood, because he should have remained in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer shall return to the land of his possession. These things shall be for a statutory ordinance to you throughout your generations in all your dwellings. I'm trying to see how far I need to go down. 34. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death at the evidence of witnesses. Notice that. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall not take ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. You shall not take ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge that he may return to live in the land before the death of the priests. So you shall not pollute the land in which you are, for blood pollutes the land, and no expiation can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it except by the blood of him. Who shed it? Verse 34, you shall, you, should not, you shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwelt, for I, the Lord, am dwelling in the midst of the sons of Israel. So it's a long passage, but what does it spell out for us? The idea that the one who accidentally kills someone is to be given a fair trial. And the whole thing's to be based on what? Witnesses. There needs to be multiple witnesses. And so the idea is it was set up in the law that was given to Israel, the idea that the person would get a fair trial. And that's how it's supposed to work. The sort of, but you notice the sort of justice was there. If the person's guilty, what's supposed to happen? They get punished. And you're not, supposed to be, you're not supposed to take ransom. If somebody's guilty of death, 
then that's what they are supposed to be punished with, not pay off some kind of ransom and get out of it. Deuteronomy 19, verses 1 through 13, when the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord give, your God gives you and you dispossess them and settle in their cities, <coughs> excuse me, and in their houses, you shall set aside for yourself in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God gives you to possess. Three cities, I'm sorry, it says there, for yourself in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God gives you to possess. You shall prepare the roads for yourself and divide into, into three parts the territory of your land, which the Lord your God will give you as a possession, so that any manslayer may flee there. It's the same principle here. And remember, Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. Now, this is the case of the manslayer who may flee there and live when he kills his friend unintentionally, not hating him previously, as when a man goes into the forest <clears throat> excuse me, with his friend to cut wood and his hand swings the axe to cut down the tree and the iron head slips off the handle and strikes his friend so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live. Otherwise, the avenger of blood might pursue the manslayer in the heat of his anger and overtake him because the way is long and take his life, though he was not deserving of death since he has not hated him previously. Therefore, I command you, saying, you shall set aside three cities for yourself, if the Lord your God enlarges, enlarges your territory, just as he has sworn to your fathers and gives you all the land which he promised to give your fathers, if you carefully observe all this, this commandment which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to walk in his ways always, then you shall add three more cities for yourself besides these three. So innocent shed will not, uh, blood excuse me, will not be shed in the midst of your land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance and blood guiltiness be on you. But if there's a man who hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and rises up against him and strikes him so that he dies and he flees to one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and deliver him into the hand of the avenger of blood that he may die. You shall not pity him, but you shall purge the blood of the innocent from Israel that it may, may go well with you. Real quick, let me say something. So, but it's implicit in this, by the way, that. There's witnesses, there's evidence that this person did it on purpose, See, that he was lying in wait. It's not stated specifically in here, but that's implicit in this, is that when the elders go get that individual and bring him back, that there was evidence. There were witnesses that saw what happened and that they knew he was lying in wait. Yes? So there's not supposed to be a complete acquittal for someone who accidentally kills something else. There's still a punishment associated with that. There's, so the, the one who accidentally kills someone, for example... Uh, they would have to remain in that city of refuge for a, a, some period of time until the high priest. They Well, so if you remember what it says, uh, once the high priest dies, then they get to go back to their land of possession. So they don't lose it, but they they don't get to live there during that time period, right? They are, there, is a, there is a punishment associated with accidentally killing someone, and it is that you have to remain in your city of refuge. Uh, this justice should be fair. And not perverted by partiality. This is so important. So important. Uh, Exodus uh, 23, verses 2 and 3. You shall not follow the masses in doing evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his dispute. Notice the language there. You're not supposed to be partial. It didn't say, nor shall you, be, uh, shall you be partial to the rich man. It doesn't say that. It says to the poor man. It's not supposed to work either way. Justice is supposed to be blind, right? Justice is supposed to be blind. It doesn't matter if someone's poor or rich. You're not supposed to show any partiality. Leviticus 19.50, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. All right, now, this is a stupid example, but I'm going to give it anyway when this thing kind of falls apart. So there's a recent, I just saw this video yesterday. There was an umpire in a baseball game and a pitcher threw a pitch that was a little bit low, probably, and the umpire called it a strike. And the batter got really upset, I mean really upset, and, and made, made a whole scene about that strike. And that was strike two. That was strike two. Well, then the pitcher gets up there, and the next pitch he throws, it wasn't even close. And the umpire rang him up. <laughs> now, was that, was that umpire impartial? Not at all. He was mad at that guy for raising such a stink, and that pitcher could have thrown that ball over everybody's head into the stands, and he would have called it a strike at that point because he was not being impartial anymore. That's not the kind of judge that we're supposed to have. I'm trying to see where we are on all this. We've still got some points to go. I don't think we're going to be able to finish all of this. 
Uh, we'll, come back, we'll come back next time and we'll pick back up with this principle. While, while fear of punishment certainly motivates, a healthy conscience is the best motivation for submitting to the governing authorities, the idea that we have been given a conscience by God and that is one of the things that helps to motivate us. But we got through a whole lot of that. We'll come back on Wednesday night and we will uh, pick up where we left off here on our principles of Romans 13, 1 through 7. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at these verses. It's such an important principle that we need to understand, especially in the times in which we live where our government seems to be becoming more and more perverted towards injustice rather than justice. And so many principles are being put forth uh, at, at every level of our governments, not just at the national level, but at every level of our governments. We're seeing more and more principles being put forth that we know are not in alignment with your principles, with your divine institutions. And so it's becoming more and more of a challenge for us in terms of uh, understanding where we draw the line, uh, what are we to obey and what are we not to obey. But I pray that you'll give us wisdom that we'll be able to understand that when it comes to some of the minutia, it's not really, uh, not really that big of a deal if, if something happens. But at the same time, we need to be aware that there's a, there are movements taking place little by little trying to take away our freedoms to be able to talk about you, to to study your word and to teach your word, to proclaim the things that are in it, uh, and especially to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ and salvation through faith in him. Uh, you can talk to people about God these days, and it might not be that big a deal, but as soon as we mention the name of Jesus Christ, that changes everything. So, Father, we pray that you will maintain the freedoms that we have in this country, that we'll be able to continue to do what we do in terms of honoring and glorifying you with our lives in terms of preaching and speaking to other people about you and about your son, Jesus Christ, whom you sent to die for us. Father, we thank you for all the blessings that we have from you. And we do request that you continue to preserve this country as long as it fits in your Alpha 2 Omega plan. Not our will, but yours be done. We pray all of these things in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.